Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 52, A Deck of Cards. I am your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on December 23rd, 2021, in Austin, Texas. Merry Christmas, everyone, and equivalent best wishes to those of you who celebrate or have celebrated end-of-the-year holidays in different traditions. If you are new to the podcast... We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. We believe there's dignity in our national story, along with tragedy, triumph, brilliance, hypocrisy, magnificence, depravity, corruption, venality, inspiration, oppression, genius, defeat, and glory. Mostly, we hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, those of you who tweet, a little word of good wishes is always appreciated. Write us a nice review on Apple or Spotify, which now allows for reviews, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. This is a labor of love. It's not a commercial venture, and your support is very motivating. Last week, we crossed into the 1600s and reached a new high water mark on our timeline, the year 1610, when Don Juan Dionate returned to Mexico after 12 fairly painful years in New Mexico. The history of the Americans begins to get much more dense starting in this, the 17th century. Much more stuff happened simultaneously inside our mandate, the lands that now encompass the United States. In 1600, the only European settlements in that territory were both Spanish, St. Augustine in Florida, and Oñate's little outpost in New Mexico's Pueblo country. By Oñate's departure, there had been at least five English expeditions to the Atlantic coast, including three reconnaissance missions to today's New England, a new colony on the coast of Maine, and the establishment of Jamestown. Meanwhile, Samuel de Champlain will enter Vermont in 1608 for France. So there's going to be some backing and forthing, I'm afraid, while we sort out all the happenings in early 17th century, vast early America. This is all dangerous ground for me because we are starting to touch upon subjects that many of our listeners already know a great deal about, some of them much more than I do, or they have very strong feelings about them, or both. I shall do my best and restate my hope that you will send along corrections, comments, and eruptions of outrage in only the most civil tones, please, via comments on the website or via email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. This episode is the Popham, Saginahawk Colony, and Other Adventures on the Coast of New England, 1602-1608, Part 1. The English, it turns out, because I didn't know this, established a colony on the coast near today's Phippsburg, Maine in 1607, only a couple of months after the founding of Jamestown. It would survive just over a year. The Popham are... Sagadahawk Colony, I'm going to go with Popham because it's a lot easier to pronounce, was the culmination of several exploratory missions along the New England coast from approximately Cape Cod to Maine between 1602 and 1605. 
1602, Bartholomew Gosnold, who would eventually die in those first ugly months at Jamestown, explored the New England coast and gave several famous places names that persist today. In 1603, Martin Pring would land on the coast of Maine, and in 1605, George Weymouth would do the same. We will get to all of these expeditions in due course. The Popham colony has fallen into some obscurity after early attention had been paid to it. It had been endorsed by James I on April 10, 1606, as one of the two colonies chartered under the Virginia Company, the other being Jamestown. The colonists built a fort, the archaeological remains of which we discovered only in 1994, and got through its year with perhaps only one death, an astonishing feat of survival. Nevertheless, after about 13 months, the colonists packed it all up for reasons that historians still argue about today. How they argue about it is, in fact, interesting in and of itself. We'll return to that, too. The relative obscurity of the Popham colony in our national story is reflected by the fact that the main book on the subject was published by Henry Otis Thayer back in 1892, the Sagnahuk colony comprising the relation of a voyage into New England. Thayer's book includes the main original surviving documents and a review of all the subsequent writing about the Popham colony between 1608 and 1892. Thayer's introduction describes the whole of European settlement up until 1607 in just a few pages. I'm going to read a barely abridged version of it for you because in addition to capturing much of what you have heard if you have listened to this podcast from the beginning, it's a great example of American historical writing in the late 19th century. Try to listen to Thayer's meaning through his dated language and, to be sure, old-fashioned point of view. Quote, Repeated and costly endeavor gave European nations the possession of the discovered new world. In the process, immense treasure was dissipated, human life squandered. Most startling is the record of shipwreck and voyages for exploration and early settlement. The hazards of those untried seas were proved at excessive cost. The means, wealth, and zeal contributed to make seizure of that unexplored domain were swallowed up or beaten in pieces on inhospitable shores. Tropical diseases fatally smote multitudes, enraged natives cut off thousands, and harassed or swept away infant settlements. Even Europeans themselves, rival and hostile, added to the wreck of beginnings and the loss of human life. Disaster and failure have startling prominence along the lines of colonization, yet success, oft delayed, beaten back at length, gained the field. The first colony of Columbus was crushed within a year. The second reduced mutinous. Its location change scarcely survived. His third, attempted in 1501 on the Caribbean coast, was quickly expelled. Spain secured dominion in the New World by invasion and bloody conquests and has left a revolting record of inhumanity, shaming greed, and atrocity. It might bear interjecting at this point that in 1892, when Thayer wrote these words, the United States and Spain were headed to confrontation and eventually war. 
back to Thare. The Spaniards subjected the Antilles and overran tropical America by the terror of his weapons against which the native races made imbecile resistance. Before his rapacity and cruelty, the conquered peoples withered away, but excessive and sore were his own losses in securing that rich domain. At Panama, 28 years after the conquest of Peru, 40,000 men died of various distempers. The scheme to occupy the Caribbean coast in 1510 signally failed. Hostility of an assailed people, a noxious climate, a series of calamities shattered these colonies, and of a thousand men considerably reinforced, the greater part perished within a year, and only fragments finally gained precarious foothold at Panama. Ponce de Leon in 1521 sailed to possess and to colonize the Florida of his discovery, but met a savage and deadly repulse from which but a portion of his men regained their ships. Himself received a wound which sent him to Cuba to die. Then Narvaez and his confident followers in 1528, seeking in the same land of flowers the prizes of conquest to ensure early possession for Spain, pushed fearlessly into the interior, where hardship, want, arrows from the flanking enemy, wreck of boats, and unknown disasters made them all victims, save four, who gained the Pacific coast. For similar purpose, but in the name of religion, not of war, Dominican monks went thither in 1549. Fear and suspicion held them enemies. Three became martyrs to their high aim. The disaster terminated the attempt, for death seemed to guard the approaches to the land. France had explored the northern coasts and in a domain without bounds had by a name created a new France. But first essays at occupation were futile and disastrous. Cartier and Roboval giving reality to the nation's dreams of empire on the St. Lawrence in 1541 set down 200 colonists. But divided leadership, the inroads of death, wrecked the hopeful scheme. The remnants of the broken colony soon stole back to France. Discomfiture fell harshly on Coligny's plans for Huguenot colonization in America. That under Ribot at Port Royal of the Carolinas, 1562, unsupported by reinforcements, weakened by dissensions, lacking vigorous purpose, in a year deserted the post given to hold for France. Two years later, the colony led out by Laudonniere to Florida escaped wreck, threatened by turbulent, dissolute, selfish elements within it, to be utterly crushed under fierce and infamous blows as Spain sent Melendez to assert her claim and manifest her hate for heretics. But a remorseless avenger quickly came in, the Gascon de Gorge, who seized and hung as robbers and murderers the Spaniards who had occupied the place of the Huguenot victims. You guys remember all of that, right? Those were some cool episodes. England busied her explorers and seamen with the problem of the Northwest Passage, the extension of commerce, the search for precious metals. But tardily assayed occupation of the domain Cabot had discovered. Frobisher's voyage of 1578 aimed at a settlement, 
Disaster by icebergs, perils and unknown seas, desertion, loss of provisions, flagging zeal, turn the expedition homewards, gaining only cargoes of glittering, worthless earth. In the same year, Humphrey Gilbert, under royal patent, projected a foreign plantation. Early dissensions rent the collected company of adventurers. A portion led by Walter Raleigh, undertaking the voyage, were driven back by added misfortune. The enterprise came to naught. Four years later, Gilbert renewed his endeavor and sailed with a squadron to make precise exploration and lay foundations for colonies. But unrelenting disaster followed closely and finally struck down both him and his enterprise. One ship at the outset turned back. One was abandoned at Newfoundland. A third, the largest remaining and admiral of the fleet, suffered miserable, needless wreck on the coast of Cape Breton on the return voyage. In a fierce tempest and amid outrageous seas, the little craft of ten tons in which Gilbert persisted in sailing went down, nearly in the longitude of the Azores. A single vessel gained Falmouth Harbor to give disheartening report of ships, means, lives, made an empty sacrifice. The disaster is the more deplored, since Gilbert intended a precise description of the region to be visited. So there is lost to us valuable information of the existing condition in 1583 on the coast of Maine, toward which he sailed but approached no nearer than the place of the wreck. Raleigh, undaunted, pushed similar designs. In 1585, sent a hundred men in charge of Grenville to Carolina, who held Roanoke Island for a year. Then these, weak in purpose and despondent, esteemed the supplies and encouragement of the sea rover Drake of far less worth than permission to embark with him for England. Grenville reappeared in a few weeks only to find Roanoke deserted. Fifty men were left to hold possession, but at year's end the speechless ruins could not tell their fate. Again in 1587, Raleigh renewed the experiment. A colony of men and women reoccupied Roanoke and laid the foundations of the city of Raleigh. But opening events threatened misfortune. Delayed supplies involved dire disaster. The colony disappeared without record to show the agonizing progress of the ruin and dispersion. Throughout a century from the discovery of the continent, misadventure and calamity attended every endeavor to establish settlements. Spain indeed had costly success. France and England failed repeatedly, and with burdening loss and prostrated hopes to which only a few indomitable spirits were superior. The 16th century closed without a hamlet on the whole coast north of St. Augustine, a witness to permanent homes of Europeans. These abortive attempts were not, however, wholly wasted force. They were processes of education and preparation. As the new century opened, added in some respects nobler motives were operative to induce the seizure of the inviting domain beyond the sea. The purpose of colonization still lived, was intensified. Raleigh had given an invaluable example of courage and enterprise. It was potent to inspire others, though himself in prison awaited death. 
Sir Fernando Gorge, coming to the front in generous and zealous leadership, efficiently used his fortune and influence. Again, adventurers went out. Gosnold and his company in 1602 to the shores of Cape Cod. But when their ship essayed to spread her sails for the return voyage, unmanly fears stole away their hearts. They abandoned the beginnings of a settlement, and another failure extended the lamentable series. But failure was not defeat. Other tentative voyages followed. In the next year, Martin Pring came to the coast of Maine and gained valuable information. Next, in 1605, occurred the voyage of George Weymouth, of uncertain destination and purpose, but turned away by refractory, compelling winds towards the north and furnishing stimulus to immediate colonization. Phew, a long quotation, but there's some great stuff in there. And I love the tone as an example of the writing of the time and the attitude of a famous historian in that moment the late 1890s. It's, it's worth listening from that perspective, too. By the early 1600s, the Elizabethan moment was waning. Most of her great Protestant privy council and giants of the Armada era had passed, including Francis Walsingham, William Cecil, Francis Drake, and Martin Frobisher. The great queen herself would die on March 21, 1603, and the Scottish King James would become King James I of England. James would make peace with Spain and end the privateering war that had vexed the kings of Spain and toss Elizabeth's favorite, Walter Raleigh, the last of the original Elizabethan sponsors of North America, into the Tower of London, ending Raleigh's exclusive license to settle Virginia. James would not withdraw from North American adventure, but he would change its terms. No longer would confrontation with Spain and the looting of Spanish loot be the primary motives. A new group of sponsors and adventurers would take over under a new paradigm, if you will, including the aforementioned Fernando Gorge and commercial aspirations in competition with France, which was aggressively expanding its trade and furs from Canada would become the primary movers. The first English expedition of the 17th century launched in the setting sun of Elizabeth's reign. On March 26, 1602, Bartholomew Gosnold captained 20 aspiring colonists and a dozen sailors on a small bark named the Concord. Destination, Northern Virginia, which today we would call New England. Recall that just as Spain had at one point thought of La Florida as encompassing essentially all of North America north of New Spain, and the French had thought of New France in similarly expansive terms, Raleigh's patent for Virginia encompassed essentially the entire Atlantic seaboard north of clear Spanish settlement, which more or less meant north of Georgia or something. Bartholomew Gosnold was only 31 years old in 1602, and he would live only until 1607, for he would die in that really ugly first year at Jamestown Colony, which we will get to very soon. In 1602, however, he had already made a name for himself on the sea for Elizabeth and had the favor of wealthy men in the West Country interested in English settlement. Gosnold also probably knew Richard Hacklight the Younger, who had 
come into his own as the leading intellectual promoter of English settlement. The two certainly came to know each other eventually because Hacklite would be one of the original promoters of the Virginia Company of 1606, and Gosnold would be one of the leading men in the first Jamestown voyage of 1607. The highlights of the expedition are few and simple, usually captured in a couple of paragraphs. The Concord made landfall on the coast of Maine near today's Portland on May 14th, 49 days after having departed Falmouth and Cornwall. Rather than following the usual route pioneered by Columbus, which involved sailing south to the Canaries, then west across the Atlantic on the easterly trades to the Indies, then up the coast of today's United States, Gosnold had innovated a northern route via the Azores. The strong westerlies on this route had defeated Portuguese caravels back in the 15th century, but ships and navigation were both better 130 years later, and this route had a huge advantage for the English. No risk of Spanish entanglements. Gosnold therefore established how the English would travel to New England thereafter, including the colonists on the Mayflower 18 years later. From here, the story is superficially simple. Gosnod sailed south along the coast to today's Massachusetts, passing and naming Cape Cod. Goswald and his men were the first Europeans that we know to see Cape Cod or identify it as a cape rather than either an island or the mainland. The expedition then swung around to Martha's Vineyard, which after brief tramping around revealed itself to be overrun with wild grapes, among other interesting flora. Gosnell gave the vineyard its name, too. Most historians attribute the name Martha to his oldest child, who had died before Gosnell's departure. But Martha also happened to be the name of Gosnell's wealthy and assertive mother-in-law. So I bet a pint or two, that upon his return, he explained the basis of the island's name in more than one way, depending on the audience. And really, who wouldn't do that? The expedition then sailed through Vineyard Sound in the Elizabeth Islands, also named by Gosnold, which formed the chain that encloses Buzzage Bay. The party landed on today's Cuttyhunk Island and spent several weeks there. There they had several interesting and positive encounters with the locals, after which they departed on the 18th of June and arrived back in England on July 23rd. Henry Otis there, as you just heard, said that unmanly fears stole away the settlers' hearts, which may or may not be true. There were only 20 of them, and they were, in the words of the expedition's chronicler, meanly provided. Maybe they just decided the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. At any rate, apart from assigning these names that survived the long centuries since, the Gosnold expedition is interesting because the group wrote down observations of and encounters with the local indigenous people. Let's spin through a few of those. Here's the narrative of the first landfall near today's Portland. But on Friday the 14th of May, early in the morning, we made the land, being full of fair trees, the land somewhat low, certain hummocks or hills lying into the land, the shore full of white sand but very stony or rocky. 
and standing fair alongst by the shore about twelve of the clock of the same day, we came to an anchor, where eight Indians in a basque shallop, with mast and sail, an iron grapple, and a kettle of copper, came boldly aboard us, one of them apparelled with a waistcoat and breeches of black serge, made after our sea fashion, hose and shoes on his feet. All the rest, saving one that had a pair of breeches of blue cloth, were naked. Yes, you heard that right. The first encounter between Gosnold and his men on the coast of Maine were Indians, including two wearing European clothing, sailing a Basque boat. You may recall that all the way back in episode two of the podcast, nearly a year back, Charles Mann wrote that Indians had learned to ply the coast of the Donland in sailing vessels from the very earliest European encounters. By 1602, in fact, this would have been happening a long time. The Indians in this region would have been the Abenaki, who very attentive listeners will remember mooned Verrazano in 1524, 78 years before Gosnold came along. Mann wrote that even that early, the Abenaki were antagonistic to Europeans because they already had encountered them. From that first encounter, the Concords scouted the Cape, caught so many cod in the space of a few hours that they had to toss some overboard for want of storage, and then headed south toward the vineyard. There they saw evidence of Indians, but no actual Indians. But they did record at some length the great flourishing of useful trees, raspberries, gooseberries, hurtleberries, which I guess to be huckleberries, and an incredible store of vines. On the north side of the island, they found many huge bones and ribs of whales and all sorts of stones fit for building, in quotations. The narrative concludes with a catalog of the resources Gosnold saw in these parts, which Richard Hacklite would turn into a promotional piece arguing for permanent settlements in the region. They then moved on to the Elizabeth Islands, which they explored at some length, back to the narrative from the expedition. The rest of these islands are replenished with these commodities, and upon some of them inhabitants, yet we found no towns nor many of their houses, although we saw many Indians, which are tall, big-boned men, all naked, saving they cover their privy parts with a black-sewed skin, much like a blacksmith's apron, tied about their middle and between their legs behind. They gave us of their fish ready-boiled, which they carried in a basket made of twigs, whereof we did eat, and judged them to be freshwater fish." They gave us also of their tobacco, which they drink green, but dried into powder, very strong and pleasant and much better than any I have tasted in England. The necks of their pipes are made of clay, hard dried, whereof in that island is great store, both red and white clay. The other part is a piece of hollow copper, very finely closed and cemented together. We gave unto them certain trifles, as knives, points, and such, which they much esteemed. I'm going to interject now and announce to my grown children that on Christmas, two days hence, they will receive certain trifles, which I expect them to much esteem. Shortly thereafter, they went to the mainland for a bit, surveyed it as they had been doing all along, 
and then returned to one of the islands where they built a simple fortified house and remained for about three weeks, time enough to plant some seeds brought from Europe and see them sprout and to meet more Indians. Back to the narrative. The second day after our coming from the main, we espied 11 canoes or boats with 50 Indians in them coming towards us from this part of the main. Being loath they should discover our fortification, we went out to the seaside to meet them. And coming somewhat near them, they all sat down upon the stones, calling a lad to us, as we rightly guessed, to do the like, a little distance from them. Having sat a while in this order, Captain Gosnold willed me to go unto them, to see what countenance they would make. But as soon as I came up unto them, one of them, to whom I had given a knife two days before in the main, knew me, spoke somewhat unto their lord or captain, which sat in the midst of them, who presently rose up and took a large bearskin from one that stood about him and gave it unto me, which I requited for that time the best I could. But I, pointing towards Captain Gosnold, made signs unto him that he was our captain and desirous to be his friend and enter league with him, which, as I perceived, he understood and made signs of joy. Whereupon Captain Gosnold, with the rest of his company, being twenty in all, came up unto them. And after many signs of gratulations, Captain Gosnold presenting their lord with certain trifles which they wondered at and highly esteemed, we became great friends and sent for meat aboard our shallop and gave them such meats as we had then ready dressed, whereof they misliked nothing but our mustard, whereat they made many a sour face. Pardon me, would you have any gray coupon? This encounter, it seems to me, rings very true, nailed down by the image of them making sour faces at the eating of mustard. Of course, this was not a true first encounter, such as between Columbus's men and the Tainos Indians of the Bahamas on October 12, 1492, because by 1602, the Indians of the Dawnland had been watching and trading with these short, pale-faced men with a strange technology and boats with sails for the better part of a hundred years. These particular Indians might not have done, but surely the trading networks along the coast had taught them something of Europeans, and perhaps they knew that white men belonged to different tribes, just as they did. They had seen other tribes benefit from dealing with Europeans, so unless this group had a nasty encounter in the past, which they probably did not, why wouldn't they make friends with Gosnell's men who seemed to have treated them respectfully? One of the things that has struck me in the reading of these very early encounters between Indians and Europeans is that a great deal depends on the individuals involved. On both sides, there had been and would continue to be wise and humane men and others who were cloddish and inhumane or just very, very confrontational. Remember when Drake refrained from retaliating against the Indians on the island of Mocha off Chile in 1579, even after they had killed a couple of his men in ambush and he himself had been shot in the face. Whereas Ralph Lane burned down an Indian village near Roanoke to retaliate for the theft of a single silver cup. Gosnold seems to have been wise in his dealings with Indians, 
As we shall see soon enough, the next Englishman to come to the region, Martin Pring, would be high-handed and violent. We'll wrap up this week with one final passage from the Gosnell narrative, which has lots of interesting bits. Quote, The rest of the day we spent in trading with them for furs, which are beavers, luzerns, I don't know what those are, by the way, and Google did not yield a quick and useful answer. So if anyone knows what an L-U-Z-E-R-N-E-S fur would be, I'd be very interested in hearing about it. Anyway, beavers, luzerns, martens, otters, wildcat skins, very large and deep fur, black foxes, coney skins, the color of our hairs, deer skins, very large, seal skins, and other beast skins to us unknown. They have also great store of copper, some very red and some of a paler color. None of them but have chains, earrings, or collars of this metal. They head some of their arrows herewith, much like our broad arrowheads, very workmanly made. Their chains are Many hollow pieces cemented together, each piece of the bigness of one of our reeds, a finger in length, ten or twelve of them together on a string, which they wear about their necks. Their collars they wear about their bodies like bandoliers, a handful broad, all hollow pieces like the other, but somewhat shorter, four hundred pieces in a collar, very fine and evenly set together. Besides these, they have large drinking cups and other thin plates of copper, all which they so little esteem as they offered their fairest collars or chains for a knife or such like trifle. But we seem little to regard it. Yet I was desirous to understand where they had such store of this metal and made signs to one of them with whom I was very familiar who, taking a piece of copper in his hand, made a hole with his finger in the ground and withal pointed to the main from whence they came. They strike fire in this manner. Everyone carrieth about him in a purse of leather a mineral stone with a flat emery stone tied fast to the end of a little stick. Gently he striketh upon the mineral stone, and within a stroke or two a spark falleth upon a piece of touchwood, much like our sponge in England. And with the least spark he maketh a fire presently. They pronounce our language with great facility. For one of them one day sitting by me, upon occasion I spoke smiling to him these words, How now, sir, are you so saucy with my tobacco? Which words, without any further repetition, he suddenly spoke so plain and distinctly as if he had been a long scholar in the language. Back to me. After three days of encounters such as this, the Indians returned to the mainland, cheering with shouts of joy as they departed in their canoes, to which the English responded with trumpet and coronet. The reports from Gosnold's expedition would make it to Richard Hacklite, to whom they were grist for his promotion engine. The English would get serious about colonizing New England, still northern Virginia in their thinking, and send three more expeditions by 1607. We will get to all of those next week, by which time you and I have, I hope, defied the Omicron and nonetheless rejoiced in the company of our loved ones.
Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Their emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs>